0: Part of the Media Ministry of Cornerstone Church, you can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org, or by subscribing to our podcast. Uh, James chapter four. We've finally made it to chapter four, guys. So if you have been with us, you know we were traveling through James, and today we come to a passage that, uh, as you probably heard in my prayer, it's kind of a tough passage. The Bible always tells us, you know, in, in the Word, that the best kind of advice that we can ever give to somebody is to speak the truth in love. It never says just truth, because sometimes we can say things that are true, but we can say them in a pretty harsh way. We're never just to speak in love, because even though that sounds kind of good, and it would really kind of generate with uh, the community that we live in and the world that we live in, hey, we just need a whole bunch of love. Sometimes we can be so focusing on not hurting that person, you know, loving them, that, that we don't tell them the truth. You know, probably the perfect mixture of truth and love that I've ever experienced is that as a parent and as a son. My my parents loved me and I knew that they loved me. So when correction came, when they kind of lowered the boom, so to speak, you know, I knew that it was in love. And yet at the same time, it was filled with truth. I promise you. And, And perhaps you do the same thing. We all have one of those areas that we kind of tend to to, to gravitate to. We were at a life group one night and we talked about, okay, are you more of the the truth side or the love side? And it was interesting to kind of go around the room. And it was almost predictable. Every one of us, it could be seen in our personalities. Man, I am a truth person. I'm a love person. And yet God says, okay, it's this truth in love that brings about that balance that is needed. And that's what James does today. It's going to seem a little bit harsh. It's going to seem like James is really kind of getting out the battle and just seeing whom he can kind of, you know, spank a little bit. And, and yet, I promise you, he's coming from a heart, a pastor's heart. Remember, he's a pastor in the church in Jerusalem. And he's following the motto of Christ. Christ spoke in great love. And yet, Christ didn't mince words. And a lot of theologians said that the book of James is very much a kind of a mirror, or a reflection of the Sermon on the Mount. And you can see that when you study through that and you even see some of the different things that James says, you can kind of see where what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, James kind of comes back as his half-brother over here and kind of reiterates a little bit later on. But one thing that we see about the Sermon on the Mount, that it was a divider. It was to divide the room. See, by the time that Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount, there were a lot of people that just wanted to get on the Jesus train. They just wanted to hop on and say, man, we, we like what this guy is saying. We, we, we like this. It's, it's love. It's, it's not so much law that we we're used to. And they wanted to jump on. And the Sermon on the Mount, as loving as it is, it was filled with truth. And it was to divide the crowd. Not so much to kind of, you know, push people off, but just to say, okay, you can't just jump on this Christ train, this Jesus train and expect your life not to change. It's not what it's about. And that's what James has been doing. If you notice, uh, every week we come to a a place and he he asks questions that already have the answer there because we know that, that he's already kind of saying, okay, how many of you need wisdom? Well, everybody in the whole room would raise their hand. He knew that when he asked the question. But then he begins to divide the room as he did last week. Remember? We're talking about wisdom last week. And he says, okay, there's two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom that makes sense in human nature. Earthly wisdom. Hit them before they hit you is kind of a phrase that we were looking at last week. And I guarantee you that would have been in my dad's repertoire. Hey, if if you know that they're going to hit you, son, you hit them first. Hit them harder. I mean, it's just part of that mentality that makes sense in some kind of strange way in an earthly fashion if we really put ourselves as the center. But if we put Christ as the center, if we really have the intentionality of having Christ in the center, then all of a sudden this gospel message of Christ changes the way that we think and feel. And all of a sudden those things that seem up all of a sudden kind of look down. Those things that turned kind of left all of a sudden get kind of a turn to the right. And we see Jesus saying... Things that, in one way, it really sounds far-fetched. If they strike you, turn the other cheek. Well, Now, now what is it? What dad said? Hey, hit them before they hit you? Or turn the other cheek? Because, guys, those are two completely different messages. Both of them based on wisdom. But as James would say last week, one is an earthly wisdom. An, An earthly wisdom, okay, watch out for yourself, because nobody else is watching out for you and a wisdom that is based in the heart of God. Turn the other cheek. Everybody operates, every one of us in here, I promise you, every one of us in here this morning operates under some form or fashion of wisdom, or at least what we perceive to be wisdom. I can especially say that to everybody who's in here that's a parent. Tell me if this has not happened to you as a parent. You're over at your friend's house, Two, three hours, supper, they have kids. You get in the car to come home, and one of the first things that you say to your spouse, Can you believe that they did fill in the blank? And all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at their parenting skills, and maybe they're wonderful people, but they're going, I cannot believe that they let little Billy do this or that they let little Susie do that. And we have this examination of, Well, I'm glad that we're good parents and that we know what to do with Billy and Susie. Every parent has done that I promise you At some point in time Even our best of friends There's been that point I, I just Man I, I don't know how to tell them That they're doing it all wrong Well folks That's not so much That you have wisdom Or that you're the perfect parent It's just uh, There's something that makes sense To you as a parent And so you do it that way If not you would change That's earthly wisdom that, That's how earthly wisdom Can make sense Heavenly wisdom, oftentimes, really doesn't make sense. It just doesn't follow the rules of humanity and in human nature. Turn the other cheek. Really? If he asks you to go a mile, go another mile? Folks, that makes no sense to my human nature if I'm the sinner. But Christ didn't say to do these things just to be nice people. Hey, I want you to be a bunch of nice people. So if they ask you to go one mile, go two. If they ask for your coat, give them your shirt too. No, he said all for the sake of the gospel. All of this is for the sake of representing Christ in this world. So it's not directed toward us. It's not so that we can become the nice people. Everybody out there is the not so nice people. I promise you, I've met some people that are not Christians, do not have a faith and belief in God, and they are much nicer than you. I don't say that to, 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 to tell you. I'm just saying, some of the nicest people I've met, it's, it's it made me scratch my head because I'm going, man, they are so nice. And, and yet they don't have a belief in Christ. So, so niceness, folks, is not a commodity that we have as Christians, and, and we've kind of turned the tables on it. And nobody else knows how to be nice. So James, as he divides the room on wisdom, he does the same thing this week as he talks about humility. And the first thing that oftentimes we think about in humility is, you know, that shy person, kind of that, ah, uh, oh, shucks, you know, not me, I don't want the attention. That's not really the humility that Christ is talking about today. As chapter 4 begins, he begins to tell us something that really is going to hook in to the last part of chapter 3. So if you weren't here last week, I'm going to catch you up in these two verses. We're going to link these two together because wisdom and humility, believe me, are very much linked in James' mind. Let's go back to the last two verses, James chapter 3, and that will be our launching point for this whole discussion on humility in chapter 4. James says, "...but the wisdom that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He says, okay, you want to know what heavenly wisdom looks like? Here's what it looks like. He says, when you have this kind of wisdom, notice that it says in verse 18, a harvest, there's something that's going to be the fruit of this. That's what James is really going to expand upon. It's really what he's been talking about the whole time if you have saving faith, not just faith, he said even demons have faith. Even demons recognize that there's a God and a Christ. He, he said that back in a couple of chapters ago. But, but he said, if you have saving faith, salvation faith, believing faith, then it's going to bring about a harvest. I think, he doesn't say this, but I, I think that very much James would say that, but even if you don't have saving faith, it brings about a harvest too. It just... Harvests a whole different thing. In fact, if you went back to chapter 3, he would say, here's the strife, envy, all these kind of things. Man, it brings division. It brings about a lot of wounds and a lot of broken hearts. Well, guys, I don't have to convince you that. You have lived that. I have lived that. Have you not lived by the world's wisdom and seen that even though it says hit them before they hit you and and see something still self-destruct? So James brings us to a place where he says, look guys, whatever you do, whatever you decide to be right, whatever path you decide to go in on your life and invest in, wherever you plant your heart and your mind, there's going to be a harvest. There's going to be fruit that comes from that. It can be bad fruit if you're investing in the things that are in this world. If you invest in the things of Christ, then it's going to be a good harvest. But just know that our actions and the way our beliefs they do have results. How many of you would agree with that? That the actions and the decisions and the beliefs of your heart and your life have results in the path that you take. And that's all he's saying. But it's very important for us to realize that because we live in a world and they and a society, folks, that want to separate responsibility <laughs> with actions. Oh, you can do whatever you want. Oh, well, I'm not responsible. Somebody else is responsible. In fact, my parents are responsible because if I was raised right... They would have loved me and encouraged me a little bit more Then I probably wouldn't have done that It's always somebody else's fault And we live in a world That loves More than I believe any time that I've ever seen Victimization And you know who loves victimization Even more than this world Satan does If he can get you into victimization Feeling like a victim Oh woe is me He can talk you you about anything else Well then it doesn't really matter that I go do this or do that because I'm just a victim here The world owes me Life owes me And I don't care I, I say this with all heart I don't, It's not that I don't care what you've been through I'm not saying in that context of feeling care No matter what you've been through If Christ isn't the one that's able to fix that By his wounds we are healed. If if he's not able to deliver you out of that, then why do we worship him? Why, Why do we go to him? The fact that Christ died for us in our place, victory over sin, raises every one of us out of that victimization now into a life with God. And, and I promise you guys, and we can talk about it. You can call me up this week and say, bye, bye, I disagree with this. or That's fine. I'd love to have this discussion biblically over the Scriptures because I promise you there is not a Scripture that will ever point for us being victims if Christ is in our heart and our lives. We are the victors through Christ Jesus. That's our identity. Not victims. Victors. Well, that's where he goes with this. And so look what he says in verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He just said that whatever path we go in, however we live our life, whatever we think is wise and right, it's going to have a harvest. And he says, hey, look at the harvest of your life. Are you fighting and quarreling? And there was probably people in the Jerusalem church that were probably fighting. And so he's probably, you know, using this as an example. But there's probably everybody there that can relate to this. He says, believe me, that harvest didn't come just because there were some wild seeds over here. He said... There's something in your heart that caused you to be quarrelsome and, and, and to fight him. He said it's the passions that are at war with you. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, I don't know that anybody in the in First Baptist Church of Jerusalem had actually murdered somebody. I, I think he's talking here more like that there were more murdering relationships and murdering very much marriages and families and different things like that, that is talking in a figurative way. Hey, man, when you bring hate and and you don't bring, you know, this wisdom of God, all those qualities that we saw in chapter 3, he said it brings division and it brings death. Maybe not a physical death, but certainly death to relationships. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. A verse that we repeatedly take out of context always read verses in context. This is not your Christmas wish list. We, you have because you ask not. No, he says you have not because you didn't ask, but he said in the times that you asked, you really had a wrong heart. You didn't have so much the kingdom of God in mind as you had your own kingdom in mind. So he sets it up and, and all of this goes back and reflects and he says, is this not because of the passions that are at war within you? Folks, listen. The world was not created to have self as the center. Go back again, as we always said, Genesis chapter 2. Is man the center of Genesis chapter 2? No, God is. He creates all the animals. He creates all this beautiful stuff. He creates all this. And and in the midst of all of this, as God is the center of all this, man comes along and Satan brings about a temptation to Eve and to Adam. Make yourself the center. Forget what God said. God's holding out on you. You're a victim here. It's the first victimology of the human race. Hey, if you eat of this tree, you're going to be just like God. All of a sudden they felt victims. Well, God's been holding out. If we just eat this fruit, then we're going to be like God. From the very beginning... Man was not created to be the, the center of everything. But when sin came in, when Adam and Eve sinned, all of a sudden, who becomes the center of everything that they do? Every waking hour, every moment, every synapse in their mind, man becomes the center. And when he becomes the center, he becomes the sinner. And so all of a sudden we have Cain and Abel, two brothers. And I don't know that you can really characterize their relationship as one of brotherly love. Why? Because God smiles upon one, not the other one, in and, and praise of, of an offering that was given. And so what does the one brother do to the other brother? He goes out and actually murders him. That's what James is saying. Look, man, you make choices in life. You are not exempt from the results and the responsibility of the choices that you make. And if you go down this path and you make yourself the center, then you're going to have envy in your heart. You're going to become a victim and all of a sudden, it's going to bring destruction and death. And it did. From the very beginning with uh, Cain and Abel, and from this point on. So he's lining all this up, and all of a sudden he says, okay, you know, he introduces the opportunity for change. Since you and I were born with the nature of self in the center, how do we change that? Because to expect different results and not changing the formula, what did Albert Einstein say? He said, that's insanity. He says, insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. How does that play into this? Very much, he's saying, okay, look, if you are, if you're born with this, how many of you would agree that you're born with this in nature and that you are the center of your own thought and existence? Okay, if you don't change that, then then, he says, it's really insane. Now, I don't know that that's really what Albert Einstein was going for. I don't think he was coming from a theological perspective, but it fits. He's going, man, it's insanity to think that one day I'm just going to become a nicer person. One day, you know, I'm going to do this or do that. And all of a sudden, everything's going to be different in my life. And the harvest is going to be different in my life when something right here and right here hasn't changed. That's what James has been talking about for four chapters now. Saving faith, not religion, not a bunch of laws, not commandments and all that. He says, man, if you, until you have this heart change in Christ Jesus, he said, why? It would be insane to think that you're going to get a different harvest in your life. And so we go on. When we begin to see this, we begin to see that he gets pretty tough about this. Throughout the book of uh, this letter that James is writing to, as pastor to the parishioners in the church in Jerusalem, he's repeatedly called them brothers. Have you seen that? Hey, brothers this. And he's not excluding sisters. He's just using a generic term. Believers. Brothers. And yet, look at verse 4. As he begins to talk about, man, the harvest of this kind of life and this kind of way of thinking where self is the center, he says, look at the result of this. And look what he says as he, he doesn't call them brothers anymore. What does he say? Go, go ahead and say it. You you adulterous people. Well, somebody woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And you were calling us brothers, 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 and now you call us an adulterous people? He, folks, he didn't change... The side of the room that he was talking to, he didn't all of a sudden go, okay, now all you people outside of church, you're adulterous people. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the same people that he's been calling brothers and sisters all along, but now he says, you adulterous people. Why is he doing that? Because he just is really mad and angry, and he wants to to hurt their feelings. No, he says, guys, this is so important. I want you to see in truth. I love you, but I want you to see in truth what you're doing. And when you go by the world's wisdom instead of godly wisdom, you're an adulterer. Well, Bobby, is he really saying that? Is it? Well, look what it says: "You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? And that teaches with God. You're, you're actually God's enemy. I mean, that's a great way to, wake, to welcome somebody to church on Sunday morning. Hey." Welcome, we're just a whole bunch of God's enemies here and But we decided we were going to gather together And sing a couple songs Take up an offering He said, he's talking to the church And he said, okay, you adulterous people Do you not know that When you're a friend with the world That you're actually, at that time An enemy of God An enemy against the things of God Folks, he's not saying you can lose your salvation That is secure in Christ Jesus But he says, your actions And when those actions come about What do actions bring? A harvest. And so when you do think like this, you you can be... I trusted Christ when I was 12 years old. And guys, I promise you, there have been times that the harvest of my lifestyle brought about those things of destruction. I was just as saved. If I would have died in the middle of one of those things, God wouldn't have said, well, you know, I saw what you were doing. No, my security is in Christ. and Christ alone, we just sing the song, Christ the Cornerstone. We just sing a song about our security in Jesus Christ. At the same time, that doesn't mean that, okay, I got my ticket to heaven. Now it does not matter how I live my life. You will never be able to line that up biblically. Never. And he calls us out on that. He said, you adulterous people. Anybody ever have, read the Amplified Bible? The Amplified Bible is a tremendous kind of paraphrase. I love to, to read it. And it actually says it this way. James 4.4, 4, you are like unfaithful wives having illicit love affairs with the world, and breaking your marriage vow to God. Wow. The Phillips translation. I love the Phillips translation. Another great translation. This is what he says. You're like unfaithful wives, flirting with the glamour of this world, and never realizing that to be the world's lover means becoming the enemy of God. Tell us what you really think, James. James because this is kind of a gray area. We don't know what you you know. No, he's being so black and white. He says, guys, when you act like this, realize here's a harvest. You don't lose your salvation. You're secure in Christ Jesus, but you can't live life however you want to and expect a harvest of righteousness. You put yourself in the center and your marriage will begin to suffer the effects of that. You put yourself in the center of this or that or whatever it is. And so he's calling for this humility and he's trying to get us to get out of this mindset that somehow we can just kind of ride the fence. I thought that you could do that when I was 17 years old, probably the most tumultuous year of my my personal life. I've been a Christian since I was 12, five years of living for Christ, uh, somewhat living for Christ. 17, all of a sudden got a car and got a lot of liberty and had a lot of choices before me. I was what I thought was a fence sitter Friday and Saturday nights I very much went over here and visited the ways of the world if you want to say it that way Sunday morning guys I went to church every Sunday but there was complete frustration in both worlds I was too saved to enjoy the world and I was living too much in sin to enjoy church And when I was 17 years old, God, I thought I was sitting on this fence. And he said, Bobby, there's not a fence to sit on, either kind of for me or against me. Well, please don't get the idea that I've walked the straight and narrow ever since. But I did make a decision in my life. God, either you're going to be everything or you're going to be nothing because I am totally miserable. I'm miserable in church because I feel guilty and I feel like I've just let you down. I'm, not, I'm miserable at the parties because every, all the fun everybody's having, is not fun to me because I hear in the back of your mind that this isn't the right choice for me. If you ever think that you can ride the fence, please understand the wording of James here. James says this isn't a simple little ride the fence, play in the world, play at church he says this is warfare that's what he says this is warfare he uses those terminology it's a little graphic but have you ever heard the term drawn and quartered they tie your arms they tie your legs to to ropes and then they tie each one of those ropes to a horse and and then they tell instruct those horses to to go in, in, in that direction that's what James is talking about here, guys. It's graphic, but that is what James is talking about. He said, you try to, to sit on the fence. There's no fence to sit in. He said, you live in one place or the other, and it's a warfare. And he says, that's why you kind of feel torn in all these places. I mean, have you felt that torn? Have you felt drawn and quartered before in your life when you're trying to, to walk in both worlds? He says, that's, that's why, because inside you're at war. And it feels like horses, are pulling you in that direction. Two holy horses maybe up here and, and two kind of enemy horses down here and they're pulling you in two different directions. He said, this is not good. So what's the answer? James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposed the proud. This is taken from Proverbs 3, 34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says there's an answer here and the answer is Humility. Now, again, this, the first thing that comes to our mind oftentimes with humility is, ah, shucks. And I go up to Ricky after the man, that was a great song. You sang so well. Ah, shucks. You know, I just, just try to sing, you know. And that's what we think of humility, and you have a lot of it, that humility. And any time that we try to give praise or attention to somebody, you know, we can say, ah, you know. I, I go, man, Dustin, that was like the best barbecue I've ever had. Well, I've done two things by that comment. One, you can be humbled by it. The other thing, I've kind of incited Craig to, to kind of bring it up a little bit. And, and I'm, next time, Craig's bringing me barbecue, and I get to be the beneficiary of both, you know? But that's not the humility that he's talking about here. He's not talking about, oh, not me. The humility that he talks about here is a state of mind recognizing the two things that I hope that you hear. If you get rid of me tomorrow as your pastor, I hope that in this year that I've been here, that, that you understand that there's only two really important things that the Bible describes, the truth about God and the truth about man. It all centers on that. The gospel all centers on telling us the truth about how holy God is and how sinful we are and our need for the Savior and his promise of the Savior. And that's what he does here. Authentic humility tells us the truth about God. He is holy, holy, holy as we sang before. What perfect songs this morning. God, this is who you are. But he also tells us the truth about ourself. Again, never in a way that he's rubbing our nose in sand. Always showing us, hey, there's a provision for your need. And his name is Jesus. Five things that he says, Show us humility. This kind of godlike humility. Okay, if it's not that kind of awe-shucks humility, what kind of humility is it? Five things. Let's go quickly through those. Number one, in verse 7, submit yourself to God. The word there, submit, is to bow in awe. It's not, anybody ever get somebody in a headlock? Say uncle, say uncle. Jimmy's smiling really big. He's either been the uncle or he's been the guy doing it. (laughs) Both. It's, It's not that kind of submission. That kind of submission is one under constraint. You know, somebody's holding you, and you don't want to say uncle to save your life, and yet they start punishing you so much that you just say uncle. That's not the submission that James is talking about. But a lot of people feel like that's what God does to us, that God is just going to make our life so miserable that he's going, okay, say uncle, say uncle, say uncle. And, and this, God this really doesn't operate that way. No, the humility that he's talking about here, the submitting that he's talking about here, is one where you bow in awe. You place yourself. The Greek word actually means to place under one's authority. It's the idea of lordship. A lot of times when we're talking about Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord... That's what we're doing here. James is bringing that concept. He's not just your savior. You just don't get to go to heaven because of the work of Christ. He's actually now your Lord, and you're under his lordship, under his authority. You're submitting to a person, not just to a law, and there's a big difference. Truth be told, you come around a corner, you're driving up here on Gum Springs Road or down 124 or something, you come around the corner and you see a, a police car there. How many of you almost instinctively look down at your speedometer? Yeah. Just, and you're responding kind of to, okay, man, you know, you don't know that police officer, but you're responding really not so much to the law. The law didn't matter any, when you're on the back side of that curve. But you come around that curve and all of a sudden, it's not so much that the law changed. Oh, man, I just really do think that 45 is a much safer, you know, speed to drive at. No, you thought 52 was fine or 55 or 65. But what do you do? You round that corner and you see that officer's vehicle there. And what happens inside? You respond to the authority. I hope you respond to the authority that's there, that you have respect for that authority. That's what James is talking about. It's not just okay. These Ten Commandments, man, they are such a great way to live. That you know, no, you respond even if you don't understand some of those commandments. There's a lot of things in the Bible I do not understand, but that's where we respond and we humble ourselves. Okay, God, I don't understand, but I submit to your authority. And there's going to be days in your life and my life that we don't understand. I still don't understand James chapter 1, consider it all joy, when you come up to various trials and tribulations that we're to to kind of have a joy over that. I mean, I get it. I can preach it. I did preach it a couple weeks ago. But the weight of that word is because we come under the authority of God and we know that He's sovereign God. And I still don't understand why this is happening. It's like that song... I think Casting Crowns praise you in this storm. He's not saying, okay, I, I changed my mind. This storm is so good. I love I love my life being wrecked. No, he says, no, I come under the authority of knowing that you're God. You're awesome, God. You're a you're sovereign God, and I can trust you. And that's why I can have joy. Not in the circumstances, but in you, God. And so I humbly come and I submit myself to you. There was a famous Puritan, Richard Baxter. If you've ever read any of his stuff, his great stuff. Um, a Puritan. And here's, here was his dying prayer. Lord, what thou will, where thou will, when thou will. I, I can't say that I prayed that this morning when I got up. Isn't that a great prayer? Submission. He's just submitting He's just saying Okay I submit myself to you The number two thing He says Resist the devil Verse 7 The de- definition To submit to God auto- Automatically Results in this You can't have one Without the other These are uh, This is The same, si- uh, same point Two different sides When you submit to God You will resist the devil Do you understand How that works When you resist the devil, you're submitting to God, to the authority of God. It's like being faithful to your spouse results in resisting every form of unfaithfulness. I've dealt with a lot of guys over the years. I said, well, you know, I'm not as bad as some of the guys. Some guys go do this. I said, go tell and explain that to your wife. I'm serious. Guys, we shade it. Here's white. Here's white. Here, Here's black, and we have, I don't want to say 50 shades of gray, because that brings up a whole different thing. A <laughs> hundred shades of gray. <laughs> you know, and, and, we, and I promise you, my wife, black, white, that was faithful, that was unfaithful. That's what James is saying. He's not trying to just play hardball. He's not trying to be a mean person. He's not trying to just make everybody mad at him. He says, guys, when you... Submit to God You're going to resist the devil And when you resist the devil You're submitting to the authority of God Just realize that there's no fence To sit on here And what happens He says to resist the devil And he will flee from you This is where the grace in verse 6 Comes racing in He doesn't say at that point That all of a sudden Okay Satan is just You know On a rampage to get out of there But he says This is where I give you more grace This more grace That he was talking about in verse 6 he said, you submit to the authority of God, you resist the devil, and you experience more grace. You'll feel the very power of God's grace in your life. This is not God leaving you up to your own devices. Navy SEAL training, you know what they do? <laughs> they fly you, they put you in a helicopter, a Navy SEAL. And they take you out in the Pacific Ocean. And I think it's about like 20 miles out. It's not like, okay, you can still see land. They take you out to where you cannot see anything but ocean. And they drop you and they said, okay, hope you can get back. That's not what God does. He doesn't, uh, okay, man, you want to be a Christian? You want to be a strong Christian? You want to be like a superhuman Christian? I'm going to take you out there to this barren wasteland. I'm just going to drop you out. Hope you get back. No, in verse 6, he already said, Man, you submit to my authority, you will start naturally resisting the devil. When you do that, I will give you grace upon grace upon grace. I will fortify you in your fight. Third thing, draw near to God. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In one way, it sounds like he's saying, okay, we make the first move. No, to even have a mind of Christ, to even to have opportunity to know God. God made the first move, okay? You're not making the first move in there. But there is a principle in place here. When he says, okay, now that God has opened your eyes to the gospel and to the things of God, now draw near to that and know that God will draw near to you. It's a way of saying very much that throughout the day, I choose you. When we wake up first thing in the morning, by default, Who is the center of our life? All the real people in here. me. By default, you know, just when I wake up, I still have this old human nature. And by default, first thing in the morning when I wake up, just my default, somehow, even if I ended the night before on prayer, by the time I have slept over the night, when I wake up, by default, I am back to where I am the center. But you know what the first thing I can choose to do that morning? Draw near to God. I can make that active choice in my life. man. God, I'm going to draw near to you, and I submit myself to your authority this very moment. I can keep on doing that throughout the day. That's what he's talking about. Draw near to God. Number four, moving along quickly. At the end of that, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, some other really nice words there. He's not playing around with this, guys. He says, man, when you, when you involve yourself here and you don't submit to the authority of God, man, you really get kind of dirty. And He says, I just want you to understand, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. The command is both external and internal. Clean your hands, external. Purify your hearts, internal. He says, when you're fighting this war, understand it is the, the things that you're doing in this world, but it's also a matter of the heart. He always brings it back to the heart. He said, purify your hands, external, purify your hearts, internal. He makes this distinction. And this is where he begins to look like. uh, And he uses that term that he used back in chapter 1. He said, when you don't do this, you're double-minded. You say you're one thing, but you're actually acting like another. Number five, this is what I want to leave us with. He said, you need to mourn over sin. Look at verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I told Ricky this morning, I said, Ricky, you're in you're in the sermon this morning. I said, that, that's the verse I want you to turn into a praise song right there. I mean, isn't that discouraging? I mean, in one way, doesn't that just seem like very defeating? I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say, okay, he's going to turn your... Crying into laughter. We like that verse. You go back to Lamentations. Hey, your joy is going to come when? In the morning. All right. He's not saying for us to go on off a sad face. What he's talking about, again, he's addressing people that are in the midst of taking this wisdom of the earth, self-centeredness, and they've taken this path where they've put them as the center. And he said, I, I want you to repent of that. You remember that word, repent? He said, I want you to change from this. And he said, because I, I want you to mourn and weep over sin. Guys, we live in a world that makes light of sin. I mean, everywhere we see, we, we, we have so much bad news. We have so much evil in this world that our little bit of wickedness doesn't seem that bad. And so what we do, we go around and we kind of play comparison. Okay, I'm bad, but I'm just not that bad. That's not the attitude that Christ is looking for. James says, man, mourn and weep over your sin. He's not saying that to make us feel bad and guilty. He wants us running to the cross, running to the Savior for our redemption. He says, this is where more grace comes in. Man, if you're struggling with this, he says, don't have any joy over it. Call it what it is. Have a change of mind and heart and a change of action. That's the difference between remorse and repentance. Do you know that even a 20-time, you know, a guy being caught 20 times bank robbing has remorse if he gets caught? And often, often it's because he's remorseful that he got caught. Once anybody has remorse over sin... You don't have to be a Christian to do that. You don't even have to be a good person to have remorse over sin. But to have repentance? That's not just the change of action. The word repentance actually means to change your heart, to change the way you think about that sin. Something that, you know, you say, well, it's not that bad. That all of a sudden you say, man, this, this is not what God desires for me as his child. And you call it something different. And you mourn and you weep over that. And you don't excuse it away. And you run to the cross. That's how he ends. James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The word exalt there doesn't mean, okay, you're going to be the uh, special man now, the special lady. And what he means is, okay, you humble yourself. You bow down before God. And you, under, don't, you remove yourself from being the center of your life. And you put God in center of life. God will start to bless you. I've got to be really careful here because I I don't want to turn into a TV evangelist and this kind of, okay, you do this for God and God will do this for you. But there is a measure of harvest that he's talking about. Remember he was talking about harvest? And he says, okay, when you do these things, why would you expect a harvest of blessing? But when you come under me and you love the unlovely, you you do this that's, that's kind of counter to this world wisdom, but it's godly wisdom. He said, I will bring you a harvest of what? Righteousness. He's not making the connection, okay, you give $100, I'll give you a 1000 back, like the TV evangelist. But what he's saying is, guys, every one of us, every one of us, and we'll conclude on this, every one of us this week will decide how we want to live our lives. We'll make decisions every day. And, and the decision that we make the minute our eyes open up in the morning and we get out of bed is, who's going to be the center of these next five minutes? Who's going to be the center of this day? Is it going to be me? is going to be God because he is sovereign he is holy God and I humbly in all I bow down before him I promise you if that is your prayer in the morning I can promise you I can promise you you will not get out of your door before Satan comes and tries to see if this if your promise is valid or not amen I mean the minute you say man I just I want to live for God today I promise you Satan will come okay we'll see about that (laughs) kid all dressed ready for school throws up all over himself you know, and I said, like, okay, this is gonna be a fun day. You know, little things, big things. Car won't start. Whatever. I mean, just little things that all of a sudden, instead of God being in the center of that, that, the whole mindset that you have, that all of a sudden it comes back to the self-centeredness of me, myself, and I. That's the battle that every one of us are on. But understand this: this is not a battle of sitting on the fence and at appropriate times picking this world or that world. He says, "This is war." And that's why it feels like we've been drawn in court sometimes, because it's real stuff. The promise, the promise is that you don't have to be a victim of this. you can be a victor over this in Christ Jesus. We're going to end with a song of reflection this morning, one of my favorite songs, based out of Isaiah in the Old Testament, the prophecy of the coming Christ by his wounds we are healed. That's why none of us can go out there and go, man, you don't know about my life, Bobby. I I, I have been a victim all my life. I have been, you know, just beat upon all my life. That may be true in a physical way, emotional way, mental way, but in Christ Jesus, if Christ Jesus is not the answer to that, the hope of that, then we are without hope, folks. But that's not what the New Testament says. It says that in Christ Jesus we have hope no matter what our background, our own sins, self-inflicted or somebody else inflicted upon us that you don't have to stay where you are but that God can take you to a place of victory in your life by his wounds we are healed let's pray Father we love you we thank you Father we thank you that James is uh, not just all cutesy with the word Father that it's pretty heavy that Father he does not restrain from saying that uh, the times that we act like a friend to the world that we're actually being an enemy to you because in those moments, we have actually made ourselves the center of our own world and our own thought. So, Father, we thank you that uh, it's kind of a tough sermon, kind of a tough word. But, Father, uh, I know I need to hear it. I need to be reminded, Father, not just to, to kind of soften up what I think about sin, but to mourn and weep over my sin and to come running to the cross of Calvary so that I can find the answer to my sin in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, He is our hope today. That's why we can hear a hard message this morning and go out with great hope this morning, Father, not because all of a sudden everything in our life that was wrong turned right, but because You have given us a direction to go and that is to run to the cross of Jesus, an empty tomb where there is victory over sin, death, and the grave. By His wounds, You bring healing to our lives. Will you make that personal to us as we sing this song of reflection this morning, Father? What it means in each one of our lives because some of us, Father, have physical wounds in our lives. Others have spiritual wounds. Others have emotional wounds. We have all kinds of woundedness from this world and we can run to you and find healing through Christ. We love you and we thank you as we pray in the power of his name. Amen.